Well, this morning we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. I'll bring the text up on the screen. You can also find this text on page 962 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So when you travel, as uh, we are wont to do in the summer, I don't know if how wont we will be to do it this summer with all the gas prices either going to get apparently, but uh, um, but uh, but when you're when you're traveling, it's always nice to stay in a hotel that offers a complimentary continental breakfast, right? Isn't that nice? And now and now the most now the most important thing you don't go to a hotel only for the continental breakfast, right? You don't know, you're not just, that's not why you go to a hotel. You go to a hotel, period, because you need a room to sleep in, right? You, need, you don't want to sleep in your car. You don't want to sleep on the street. You need somewhere to sleep. But the continental breakfast is a, definitely a bonus. It's a, even a selling point, you know, where it's like, well, we're only going to go to these places that offer, the, you know, they throw that in. They're not going to charge us money, and it's a, and it's a decent breakfast. Well, with that, that kind of thinking about, you know, hotels and kind of that, kind of that continental breakfast add-on, kind of as a bonus, kind of selling point, is, is a bit how I think some Christians view the resurrection. Because the, the main thing a lot of people uh, will kind of naturally think, and, and understandably so, is that the main thing about, uh, about the gospel is the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. Resurrection is a very cool bonus. Right, uh, that's good. That's great. Right, it's great that, that he threw that one in there. Right, but Paul has been at pains in this chapter to make clear that the resurrection of the dead in glory is not a cool add-on bonus or selling point of the gospel. It's not the continental breakfast of the of the gospel. It is part and parcel of the gospel itself. That you cannot have the gospel without the resurrection, without the promise even of the resurrection of the people of God. One scholar on this passage noted how Paul seems to be moving from making kind of this very clear and tight argumentation to essentially kind of a tone of celebration as he, as he thinks about what resurrection means for the people of God. And so this morning, we're going to see how resurrection is our glorious hope and secondly, how Jesus is the certainty of that hope today. 
The first, resurrection is our glorious hope. Verses 50 to 55. There's three aspects that we need to see about resurrection here. And the first is the resurrection necessity. The resurrection necessity in verse 50. Paul comes back to an important point here. He says, uh, which is that the resurrection of the dead is absolutely necessary. It has to happen. But why? Well, as Paul says, our current mode of existence will not cut it in the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. To reinforce his point, he says that the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. It's just not going to work. Now, when Paul starts talking about the people of God inheriting something, that idea of inheritance is a very Old Testament idea. The inheritance in the Jewish mind uh, for the people of God was going to be the promised land. But but it's more than just a parcel of land that's just really fertile and really great. The land came with rest, promises of rest from your enemies, rest from even internal problems, and fellowship with God. All of this was forfeited when Israel walked away from God through their disobedience. And since then... During the exile and after the exile, God made promises of a greater promised land to come, a greater rest that is to come, and a greater fellowship with God that is to come. This is the kingdom of God, as Vaughn Roberts writes in his book, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. This is truly the inheritance of the people of God that we are waiting to receive in full. And I think this actually helps give some clarity to what Jesus meant in John chapter 3 when he said that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Further in that chapter, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now we rightly apply that that of Jesus' teaching today to say that that we must trust in Christ to be born again of the Spirit with the immediate application to the redemption of our souls. Because that's what we can do now. That's the immediate effect of those words now. But what Jesus is also saying is that we are still in our flesh and blood unfit to, to truly, fully see the kingdom of God unless something changes. Because we, and we see this, and this is confirmed in Paul's writing here, that the, that the new birth, that, that being reborn, being remade, is not limited to merely internal, non-physical realities. We are indeed reborn spiritually, Uh, When we trust in Jesus Christ, but in the resurrection, we will be fully reborn, recreated in body and soul. 
And Paul's point then is that as the people of God, we are due to inherit what has been promised and secured for us in Jesus Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, that promised rest that Hebrews 4 talks about, the the fellowship with God that was not even fully or truly enjoyed by Israel itself. And this reality is so different from what we experience today or what we have experienced in the past in humanity that, that it's so different from that which we know presently that if God were somehow to transplant us today in our fallen flesh and blood, we would be like fish out of water doing what a fish does when it's out of water, gasping for air, unable to survive in this landscape. In his book, uh, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis talks, he, he basically... Uh, he, he talks about this fictional dream wherein people from hell essentially take a field trip to heaven. And it's actually a miserable experience for them because they find uh, everything about heaven is too real, too detailed, too rich, too hard. Even the grass hurts their feet because it, there's, there's a greater reality at present because they aren't fit for heaven. This is essentially what Paul is saying. In our current state, even as believers, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God as we are, but we will inherit the kingdom of God. So something has to change. The resurrection of the dead is absolutely necessary to make us able to live within the kingdom of God when it comes. That means that the resurrection of the dead is not a cool additional feature that you get when you stay at your hotel. It is a necessary condition for the people of God that we may be able to live in the new heavens and the new earth when it comes in glory. And so we see here the resurrection necessity in verse 50. And then in verses 51 to 53, we see the resurrection mystery. Now, Paul says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. And when the Bible says mystery, it means something. We, when we say it's a mystery, we mean something that's hidden that we have not yet solved, usually. But when the Bible says mystery, it means something that was once hidden but is now revealed. So it does something opposite. There's a different meaning that comes with that. So he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. And, and so this mystery is something that was once hidden but is now revealed in Christ. This mystery is regarding how the resurrection of the dead will occur. And so there are four aspects that he shares. The first three have to do with the timing of the resurrection, and the fourth one has to do with its nature. First, he says that the resurrection of the dead will occur while some of God's people are still alive. Not everyone is going to die before the end. And so the practical effect of that is that Christ's return is always imminent. We don't know when Christ is going to come back, but we know that his, his return is always near. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near us because we don't know when Christ will return. Secondly, the resurrection will occur quickly, taking only a moment, taking the twinkling of an eye. And so, and so the resurrection of the dead is, is, is not a metaphor for long-term progression or improvement. 
It is something that will occur in a moment, something which the Princeton theologian Charles Hodge defined as, he defined this word moment, this Greek word used here. He said it's a portion of time that is so small, so short, it is incapable of division. Or more, or more practically, it's as, uh, it's, a, it's as quick as a movement of the eye. You ever tried to catch your eyes moving in a mirror? You've all done it. Don't say you haven't. You've, we've all looked in the mirror and tried to catch our eyeballs moving, and it's, it's silly, but we've all done it. All right. But how fast our eyes move. As fast as our eyes can move from one side to the next is as fast as the resurrection of the dead will be. It will come in a moment, in a flash, and the dead will be raised. This testifies to the power of God. That the resurrection of the dead is not something difficult for them. He doesn't have to, like a superhero, you know, muster up the strength, you know, through, you know, to 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 make it make it happen. It just happens because it's the will of God, and it is the time for the resurrection to come. Third, uh, Paul says it will only occur at the end of all things, marked by the final trumpet blast. This matters because on the one hand, there are groups like Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred, but it was a spiritual resurrection. So you didn't, you didn't see it. You know, and so I'm always wary of the guy who comes along and says, oh yeah, no, that already happened. The resurrection already happened. You didn't notice it, but I noticed it. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's, where do we get that? I don't know. It just, you know, is there any proof of that? No, but the, you know, it's just kind of like, all right. But on the other hand, it matters because, uh, because the resurrection of the dead will come with the final judgment. It will come at the very end, and the remaking of the created order according to the glorious revelation that you can read about in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And so when it happens, when the resurrection of the dead occurs, that is it. That is the end. And, and so and there are three aspects, then, of this timing of the resurrection that Paul has given to us. The resurrection of the dead will occur while some of God's people are still alive. It will be instant. Secondly, it will be instantaneous. And third, it will be at the end of all things, the final judgment and the recreation of the cosmos. Fourth, the fourth aspect it has to do not with timing but with the nature of the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says that while not all will come into resurrection in the same way, that is, some will be alive, many will have died uh, physically, uh, that all of God's people shall be changed. He says this twice, actually. Um, again, highlighting that resurrection is not merely the reanimation of a dead body like Lazarus's resurrection, but it is a change of our mode of existence. And so when we go to the Gospels and we read about the resurrection of Lazarus, if we think that was impressive, we'll just wait till that last trumpet blast. Because there is a day when the trumpet will sound, and in an instant, the dead will be raised not to die again as Lazarus did, but raised imperishable, with bodies free from death, decay, and corruption. Bodies raised in power, and glorious and imperishable. In verse 53, Paul comes back to why. He says, Because the perishable and mortal body must 
put on imperishability and immortality so that we will be fit for the kingdom of God. Now remember, most of the Jews believed in resurrection, but they believed it was mysterious. Paul says that in Jesus, the mystery of of resurrection is being revealed to us. And once that resurrection occurs, once the mystery is truly fully revealed in, in in our experience, then we will be able to take hold of, to apprehend the resurrection victory that he talks about in verses 44, 54 and 55. Now, verse 55, I, had, I have heard, heard quoted um, without any real context, you know, by pastors, and I've even done it myself, um, and saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, but we, if we're going to be accurate about this passage here, what Paul is saying here, then we need to be careful to note the timing of when the people of God get to sing that song. Because Paul says that the people of God, that we will get to sing that song victory, that victory taunt, you know, and that, you know, it's, it's very much the na-na-na-na, you know, hey-hey-hey, goodbye, you know, that you sing to at the sporting event, right? It's very much that taunting type song at death. We get to sing that when... The perishable and the mortal has put on the imperishable and the immortal. Now let me ask you, have we put on the perishable and the immortal yet? No. Not even those who have died and gone to be with the Lord have put on the physically imperishable and the immortal. This is not a song that we sing from our experience, yet it is a song that we can sing in expectation a song that we will sing in the resurrection. Now, this is not to take away this passage as a, as a text that we can go to for comfort when we're dealing with the threat and the specter of death. We'll actually see in a moment why this text is comforting to us uh, as we apply it to our present life. But, but we need to see that this song, when we sing it, is a song that is sung at a funeral, but it is the funeral of death. Paul quotes here from Isaiah 25, verse 8. Then he follows it with a quote from Hosea 13, 14. In Isaiah, Isaiah, the, the prophet is declaring a future salvation of God, which will end in the overwhelming destruction of death itself. That victory will just swallow and overwhelm death. And then the then he quotes Hosea. Now, the Hosea quote's interesting because if you go read it in its context, it is a judgment text against Israel. Where he, where, and, uh, and he is saying, because right after he says, oh, death, where is your sting? You know, death, is where is your victory? He says, uh, my compassion is, is not coming to me. I'm going to bring a lot of judgment onto my people for their, their, their wickedness. Right? And so, uh, but, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus... Paul uses this text as a rhetorical device, not of judgment, but to mock the power of death in the face of the resurrection of the dead, in the face of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So when the resurrection comes, it must include the final destruction of death. 
It will happen. We will sing this song when death has become an impossibility for us physically. When every vestige of sin's corruption has been removed and we live in glorious eternal communion with God in a resurrected bodies. Augustine in the 4th century wrote that at this time, in the time of the resurrection of the dead, there will be such a common accord between flesh and spirit, the spirit quickening the servant flesh without any need of sustenance from it. There will be no further conflict within ourselves. And just as there, is, there will be no more external enemies to bear with, it with, so neither shall we have to bear with ourselves as enemies within you know, we, you know, the saying is, you know, you're your own, we're, we're, you know, I'm my own worst enemy. Well, in the resurrection, that's no longer true. All the, all the enemies are removed, external and internal, in the resurrection of the people of God. And so this moves us, as we consider the resurrection and the hope, the, the hope of resurrection, which is the hope of the people of God, to Jesus, who is our certain hope of resurrection today. In verses 56 to 57. Because the question is, well, how does that help us today then? If all the good stuff of the resurrection is in the future, then what songs do we sing now? And this is where Paul reminds us of two things. Our present reality and our, our victory in Jesus. And so first, in verse 56, Paul talks about our present reality. The present reality is that we do, you know, it's interesting because Paul quotes that, it says, death, where is your sting? And then he says in verse 56, the sting of, he talks about the sting of death. The sting of death of which we still feel. The present reality is we feel the sting of death because of sin. Were it not for sin, death couldn't touch us. And then he says the power of sin is in the law. And this draws from Paul's teaching in Romans 4 and Romans 7. It says the law brings wrath due to sin. And nothing's wrong with the law itself, but sin through the law produces all manner of lawlessness and trespasses and sinfulness. Now in Jesus, we are saved from the penalty of the law. We are saved from eternal death and hell. Yet we do feel the sting of death in our mortal body. We feel the sting of death at every funeral we attend. We know this. And even as believers, the law does, the law of God guides us, yet still convicts us of sin, even as we follow Christ upon the narrow path as his disciples. What this means is that the song about victory, of the removal of death's sting, is still a song that we cannot sing from our personal experience because we are those who still physically die. We wait to sing that song in fullness from our experience in the day of resurrection. Yet we are able to sing those same words in hopeful expectation, even sing those songs in joyful sorrow because of our victory and Jesus. And by the way, Clay, good song choice. So we did not plan that. So nor did we coordinate our shirt color. But yet both matched up today. All right. 
But in verse 57, he talks about, he gives thanks to the Lord for the certainty of the victory that we have in Jesus. That even though we cannot talk from our own present experience, that we have certain victory over the grave and death in Jesus. Because Jesus himself has done what we have yet to do physically. He has overcome the power of death and the grave in his body. He also now inhabits a body that can never come to harm and can never die. And the scriptures say, Paul says in another letter in Philippians 3, As he is, so shall we be. He will make us like himself by the very same power that brings all things into submission to him. And so Christ indeed has the full victory over death concerning himself. And he has united himself to us by his Holy Spirit. And therefore Paul says that God gives us in the present tense the victory over death. That victory is ours. We share in that victory by the union we have with Christ in the Holy Spirit. But we share it, we have it because Jesus has it. He is raised from the dead and he reigns on high. Our union with Christ assures us that victory. And we talk about that victory as if it's ours actually. That's how close our union is with Jesus. He is the head, we are the body. So what does that mean? Well, it means at the, next, at the next Christian funeral that we attend, or perhaps even at our own funeral, the people of God can, even with tears, yet sing of our victory over death in Jesus. Yes, our bodies will give out. They will expire. It is appointed for each man to die. But in Jesus, we are certain, absolutely certain, that one day we will experience ourselves that victory over death in bodies that are resurrected and glorious and imperishable. All of this means that we can, in fact, sing about the victory we have in Jesus over death and sin and sorrow. And this means that we don't have to act as if death doesn't exist. That's what our culture does. Our culture deals with death by just distracting people from it. Just don't think about it. But God has done something about death. Has faced death head on and given us the promised victory over it. And while we feel the curse of this world in our perishable flesh and blood, we know That because of Jesus, we have the certain and glorious hope of resurrection. Because resurrection isn't just an add-on bonus to grace. It is a fundamental feature of it. And there will come a day when in a moment, in a flash, we will be transitioned from the perishable to the imperishable. And then we will sing the song from our experience that we have been singing in faith 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And we will give thanks to God for the victory that we have in Jesus that we now have experienced in full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed in Jesus we have victory over one of the few certainties in human life, death itself. And Lord, we pray that for those of us who have an irrational fear of death, Lord, that you would help us to understand it in the context of Christian hope, in the context of the gospel, in the reality of the promises that we have in Jesus the reality that we have in him and in union with him. That where we are afraid of death, Father, may we remember our union with Christ all the more. That in him we are raised from the dead, raised up and seated in the heavenly places. That we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ now. That we have them in him and that one day we will experience those blessings in the full in glory, in the kingdom of God, enjoyed in resurrected bodies. Lord, may this truth give us hope. May it give us joy. May it give us strength and endurance for the trials that we face now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.